Ahoy and welcome in to another mind-expanding episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Magler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health and pull back the curtain on how mental health treatment really works. Alongside me, as always, is Mariska, the three-toothed Patterdale Terrier, and she is licking her paws. And again, we know she licks her paws when she's a little upset. It's passive-aggressive when you haven't been rating, reviewing, and following the podcast and telling a friend. So again, if you are rating, if you're listening to this right now and you're saying to yourself, well, I know I thought about rating and reviewing, but write it, do it, write a couple extra words and Mariska's paws are going to feel so much better. Mariska's actually though in a really good mood today because you know she loves it when we have a guest. And today, you know, again, everyone's thinking about work and going back to work. And so Mar Mariska, she's at work all the time, but we have a guest that's going to help us out a little bit with that. So Maurice DeCoin, is someone he lives in Los Angeles and is the founder and CEO of DeCoin Human Capital, where he serves as a guide to organizations of all sizes using his 15 plus years of human capital management experience, both operational and consulting. As a guide, Maurice helps organizations and leaders manage complex change, create safety and belonging, and better get navigate the people challenges inherent in scaling a business. So Maurice, we are so excited to have you here today. Oh, thank you, Daniel. I'm so excited to be here. Well, would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey and how you got into this work? Absolutely. Um, so like I think most good stories, I sort of fell into a lot of this work. Um, I studied a lot of this in undergraduate. Um, my bachelor's was in industrial labor relations and who knows what that even is. It was just like a mixture of a whole bunch of social science and law and, and random things, but it was interesting. It's all people related. Um, I graduated and I actually went to be a middle school teacher. And I taught middle school in the Bronx for three years. You need some wine to really unpack that at another time. Let me tell you. You're, bra you're braver man than I. I, could, I can't do middle I do the high school. I can't do middle you know, school. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that I may never do again. <laughs> but um, it was a wonderful experience. And after that, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I dabbled in a little recruiting. I dabbled a little here and there. And it wasn't until a friend of mine said, you know what? You have so much experience around guiding and helping others in terms of their problem solving, you should really come join me at Deloitte Consulting. And I said, I'm not an auditor. I, I, Deloitte, what's that? I really had truthfully no idea at that time. And so he sent me some job descriptions and I fell in love immediately. It really was about thinking and navigating change, complicated change, really how does the human brain work? And, um, how can you actually put together the best practices to make sure that businesses do the right things, that people do the right things and that their needs are being met? And so I was actually at Deloitte for uh, a little over uh, a little under eight years um, in New York. Um, that's actually where I'm, I'm originally from. And then I moved over to Los Angeles and I was still with the firm, but was quickly recruited over to a private equity firm, uh, K1 Operations, where I helped them build a uh, consultancy, a human capital consultancy. So what are all the best practices for all the companies that they acquire in their portfolio? And so I was able to literally have like a laboratory where I could do a lot of these best practices with different companies an assembly line and see what were the differences? Why didn't some work with some people versus others? And it was really the people dynamic in every case. And eventually I, I, I left there um, after about five years, and I took a role um, at a software company. That's where my operational experience comes in. I, I really helped the hands-on, the minute-by-minute sort of work. And now I actually run my own firm 
where I hope to just elevate. And that's why I actually call myself a guide as opposed to anything else, because that's really what I think is most important of what I do. I advise and I guide. I try and help. I'm the guide on the side. I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong, but I am going to provide you as much um, background, evidence, data, and support as possible. Well, I mean, your experience is tremendous in so many different areas of this, but I want to ask you on a personal level, so many of the clients that I work with, they're, they're struggling with this idea of when to make the leap. So you've made that leap many times already in your career of deciding, okay, I, I'm not happy enough in this. I know I could have more, but how does a person, so when you're helping people through that calculus of, I know, I know I'm not exactly really happy where I am, but it's scary to make a jump and to try something new and different. Mm -hmm. How do you start to help people through that process of figuring out, okay, what are the pros and cons or, you know, does that make sense? Like how, yeah. and, and for yourself, how, is there something that you bring to that uh, from all the experience you've had of moving from one thing to another? Uh, absolutely. And, and not only just my own experience of moving from one thing to another, but also guiding so many different mm -hmm. people in that. And everyone is different. Everyone's a snowflake, a flower. They're, they're all different in terms of the journeys that they'll make. I think a couple of things that I would always advise is, if you feel like you're no longer learning in the experience, if you really feel like you're bored and there's no opportunities to grow, mm -hmm. that is a surefire sign that you really need to consider going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So when you've already just reached that plateau where you don't feel like you're going to grow or grow in ways that you want to grow, that's what I, I'd say is the number one. Uh, number two are the things you do enjoy doing, the strengths that you employ, how much of your day-to-day, week-by-week, actually employs your strengths? Mm -hmm. We may not necessarily know what all of our strengths are when we first start our career, but if we're you know, in a job for five years or we're in multiple different jobs, we should start to get a good sense of what those strengths are. And others, our managers, our other leaders, should help us find out what those are. And then we have to ask, are we actually doing this? <laughs> are we actually employing this? Because if you're not, you're really wasting a major opportunity. I think the design of the workplace has always been about, I need this work done and it doesn't matter what body is in there. We're just gonna get it done in the same way each time. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense because we all have different strengths and different approaches to doing that. And we should take roles, we should work in a way that maximizes that. Well, and I think so many toxic workspaces like toxic relationships, one of the first things that happens is a person's self-confidence gets undermined. And then they, they begin to wonder if, if they really have value. And it can be hard for people to see mm -hmm. their own value and it can be hard for them to recognize. So when you're in workplaces where, you know, again, it's, it's the nature of capitalism that they want to get as much out of you as they can. And until you say, uncle, or until you say no mas, you know, like they're gonna keep putting things on you. And that's mm -hmm. not because they're evil. That's just because, hey, they've got work needs to get done and they're gonna shift that to someone. So when someone's just in a regular role, but they feel like they're being overtaxed by their role, but they don't want to come off, they, you know, they don't want to get a bad review. They don't want to come off as being um, ineffective. How do you help people to set those boundaries with their managers, with other things? Like, so it's not, it doesn't become too overwhelming, the amount of workload. Yeah, I, it's an excellent question. And unfortunately, I think our workplace, particularly in the United States, is set up so that we are constantly overtaxed and everyone just accepts that. So mm -hmm. it's really difficult to see one that is, and it's just sort of designed that way. So what I would first start with is look at your day-to-day. -day. Are you exhausted, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? 
it's okay to say I'm exhausted. It's okay to say I'm mentally taxed. And so how much of your day-to-day -day is just, you know, I have eight hours of meetings before I even get to start my day. That's exhausting, right? So I'd say the first thing that you need to look at is actually the way your experience is at work. Is it something that is giving you energy? Is it something that's motivating you? Or is it something that's just draining you on a day-to-day -day basis? So you have some data behind that. Second, I would absolutely talk to your manager. I would say, one, am I performing? Please explain to me how I'm performing. And really clarify that well before the year-end performance mm -hmm. review. Mm -hmm. Get a really good sense as to how you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can have the confidence to say, okay, it seems that I'm getting really good feedback. Maybe I don't need to be working 24-7 a day, right? Mm -hmm. Or a week, right? So it, I think those two elements are really important. Third, get outside objective perspectives. So ask friends who don't work at that organization mm -hmm. or uh, ask your family members. They're able to see you. They're able to see what you're experiencing. And this is not that complicated. If I don't sleep, I won't perform. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so at the end of the day, this is just the bottom line. And so these sorts of realities we shouldn't skirt around them. We shouldn't think that we're going to have to do well by not sleeping or not eating or any of those sorts of things or just working all the time. That is toxic. That is unhealthy. We're hearing it here for the 8 millionth time, I'm quite sure. But the bottom line is just set the boundary for yourself, the logic for yourself by getting all of these different data sources, your personal feelings. What does your manager believe outside sources or even colleagues? All of these will be able to give you a good sense as to, okay, maybe it's okay to take a step back, or maybe it's okay to start changing the way things are normally done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I say to people is you don't get special rules. And so if you are feeling like you're a failure, you're not living up to things, but you would feel like, you know, the person in the cubicle next to you is doing fine work. If they're doing that exact same thing, then you're giving yourself an unfair standard. And mm -hmm. so having those other people that you can check, you know, check your mindset against, because particularly for a lot of people listening to this are people de dealing with anxiety and anxiety can be a superpower because it, it makes you hyper aware of all the, the dangers, but it can also make you be hypercritical of yourself. Absolutely. Now, how about that idea though, if you do have some mental health diagnoses, if you have a history of depression, if you have a history of anxiety, do you feel like, how open do you feel people can be with their managers and how can they tell which managers are safe? You know, you talk a lot about, and I, I'd love for you to get into this a little bit more, the idea of psychological safety. Yes. And so how to know who you can really open up to and trust at work and at what point in your time at a new organization is the right time to bring some of these things up? So psychological safety is currently all the rage amongst uh, our, the managers and leaders. It is the new emotional intelligence. It is the evolution of emotional intelligence as a buzzword, as a leadership practice, as a leadership approach. So your managers are probably aware that this concept of safety and psychological safety exists. And it's based on reality. It's based on the fact that as you just observed, the human brain, the neurological system, either senses threat or it senses belonging and safety. And so at the end of the day, when you, you have, whether it's depression, whether it's any other form of limitation, you need to be able to have a conversation with your manager and say, one, I have these. Now you should not, and I'll be very, very clear, you should not 
just jump into that, right? Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that you have a relationship with this person. You need to make sure that you have created trust. I would also recommend, if you're not clear, for you to be speaking with HR. These are the individuals who absolutely understand the concept of disability, understand the concept of getting you what you need, as well as universal design. So definitely make sure that first you create the trust, second, you have backup, and that you have absolutely involved HR just to let them know, hey, listen, I have these things. HR is not going to throw you under the bus in those circumstances. Of course, you have to make that statement. There's all types of people, and this world is a very strange place, mm -hmm. but the majority of HR professionals would never take that opportunity and say, you know, I'm going to work against you in that mm -hmm. regard, because these are, these are usually protected disabilities in most mm -hmm. of the cases, and we just don't address them that way. We think that they're, they're a failure, like making a mistake or, or something of that nature. Yeah. And when you disclose these things to HR, sometimes you're actually giving yourself more protection Absolutely. because you're, you're saying you're letting them know ahead of time, hey, this is something that I'm dealing with. And if they terminate you after that, then they can be putting themselves in harm's way for lawsuits and other things. So, you know, finding those ways to be to be open. And it's something that you talk about is the idea of being able to be open about every piece of who you are and not having to hide yourself. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like just being feeling that that ability to feel open at work and how important mm -hmm. that is. Well, I'll, I'll bring this back to the concept of psychological safety. I, I, you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's really important to just bring it back out. Psychological safety is about social needs. There are three, in my opinion, three particular social needs that human beings must have addressed and met in the workplace in order to feel truly valued and to feel safe. Mm -hmm. The first is that they have a voice. We need to be able to have a voice because that is an element of who we are. I need to be able to contribute, I need to be able to speak, and I need to be able to speak up, contribute, and challenge. If I can't do those things, then I'm always going to think I'm in danger. I'm never going to be able to point out that something is wrong. I'm never going to be able to point out that there's an injustice. I'm never going to give an idea because people aren't going to value that. If I don't have that met, I'm never going to feel safe and valued. So voice is the first one. Second is growth. And this is actually a big change for all of us. So as you listen here, I would love everyone to just take a moment and really say, what's the kind of environment that I'm in? Because the second one, growth, is all about learning from mistakes. The concept that mistakes are part of the process. I have been engaged in countless meetings with managers where they turn to me and go, well, wait a second. Well, we can make some mistakes, but we can't make mistakes in front of the clients or anything like that. And I, and I always take a step back and I say, okay, so then what happens then? Do you just march your employees out in front of a firing squad? Like, mm -hmm. what do you do when somebody makes a mistake? And the absolute worst thing you can do to try and prevent them from making a mistake is to say, don't make a mistake. <laughs> yeah. The absolute worst thing that you can do. So instead, take the opposite approach and say, there are ways to fail. For example, Amy Edmondson has identified three different kinds of failure. Said there is failure that is preventable. Mm -hmm. You never want people who engage in a preventable failure to lie to you. You want them to be able to tell you they made a mistake. And the approach that you need to take is not what's wrong with you, but instead the approach should be, well, how do we improve this in the future? So if there's listeners out there who engage in preventable mistakes, this is your bad, you made a mistake somehow, 
when you say, yes, this was my mistake, take accountability for it, but at the same time also show how there could be some process improvements in the future that would prevent these mistakes from even happening. That's the kind of perspective you should take. Second, there's failures that are just completely out of your control, complex failures. You know, a hurricane hit. <laughs> there was nothing that we could do, right? But we could still try and mitigate the impacts of that. So in the future, the next hurricane that comes, we won't be completely down. And then the third is intelligent failures. In your social need is to constantly be testing new horizons, testing new things. And you should have that in your environment. So growth is a major element in social need. And then the third is your full self. And I think this is what you were mentioning, Daniel, your full self. And that involves your strengths, as I mentioned earlier. And second, your intersectional identity. Everything that's about me. Sure, maybe a straight white male, but I may have a learning disability. I may have come from poverty. I may um, have any number of other things, which my identity becomes more complex. And I go from being somebody who theoretically could be in powerful position to being now an equity seeking group. And so it's really important that as we, as we think through these social needs, that thinking about all the different parts of who we are, we need to be very clear to ourselves what those are so that we can then bring those up to others in, in, in the workplace, to our managers, to our colleagues, and find ways to celebrate those things and to celebrate the, the aspects of others. Example, I can't tell you at the end of the year how many Jewish or Indian holidays there seem to be. There mm -hmm. just seems to be coming out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. How many managers have, have turned to an employee who's celebrating these holidays and go, oh, I guess I'm going to have to step in and work for you again, as opposed to, you know, I don't know what Holi is. I don't know what Diwali is. Could you talk to me about it? I, I want to spend some time. Maybe we can even celebrate it a little one of these days. There's a big difference in, in terms of doing that, thinking, oh, now this person's holiday is burdening me, to going to let's celebrate this person, let's do it actively. And each employee here can do that. We can take that about our, we can ask and demand that of our uh, aspects of ourselves, and we can do that and support others in the same way. Well, I think another mistake that I hear about a lot of um, managers making, especially lower level managers, is when a, an employee has a grievance or a complaint, yeah. they, they get a def defensive mode of defending the organization as opposed to just listening. And just because you listen doesn't mean you're committing to solving the problem or saying, hey, this is the, the, the organization is going to immediately fix this. But if you just, again, it's kind of like doctors who have good bedside manner are mm -hmm. less likely to get sued. You can be a worse doctor, but if you have better bedside manner, and I think that's what you're talking about. Managers now, they're trying to train them to say, let's have better bedside manner. Let's just, let's at least listen and validate because that listening and validating can make that person feel wanted here. And even if you can't help them, if they say, hey, I, I hear what you're saying and I'm going to go talk to my boss about it and I don't know what we're going to get back, but yeah. I believe in you. And I think, I think what you're saying is important. That is, that person's going to go home feeling so much better about their work there than the person who, you know, you just say, well, that's the way it is. If you don't like it, maybe you should go work for somebody else. Like it's, <laughs> exactly. My way or the highway sort of thing. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Daniel Coyle uh, wrote a book of the culture code and in it, he identified something called belonging cues. And I'm going to give this as a major tip to the group here because belonging cues are the best way to make somebody else interpersonally feel validated. So you're in a conversation with somebody. 
there are three things you need to be aware of when you're having the conversation. Somebody is going to feel valued. Somebody is going to feel safe in the conversation when there is energy in the exchange. So number one, when you go back and forth in the dialogue, as opposed to Daniel says something and then I'm staring off into the distance and then maybe I say a couple of things and it looks like I'm not paying attention. You know, we all know what that feels like. So that's the first thing we need to just be cognizant of when we have those conversations. Second, we need to treat people as individuals. Don't give a generic answer to every single question. Say things like, well, actually, do you remember when we talked about this last time or, you know, most people I might say this, but for you, I'm going to say this because of, you know, this, whatever it is, try to individualize. And that also means look at the person. Don't look at your phone. <laughs> and third, and I think this is the one that most people make the mistake of because we're so busy all the time. You need to signal that at the, when the conversation ends, that you still want to have a relationship with that person afterwards. And so you don't just say, oh, uh, I'm out of time. Bye. That always sets people in all of in a tizzy, right? It says people start thinking, oh, did I do something wrong? Or does that person not actually care about this? And what I would always suggest is when you have a conversation, just say, listen, I need to end the conversation right now because I have another meeting that I'm already late for. However, let's talk about this tomorrow morning at, in the cafeteria. Not only saying why you had to end it, but then second, saying specifically when you'll resume the conversation is really important. So those three things, the energy of the exchange, the individualization of the exchange, and the way you end the exchange are extremely important elements for each person to value, for each person to be aware of so that they treat other people in a way that they're going to feel safe and valued. Now, let's say there's an area that you want to grow in. And yet you also want to make sure you're keeping up with your current job targets. How do you talk, any tips for talking to your supervisor or manager about saying like, or even good ways of seeking out mentorship from other parts of an organization. So you're saying like, Hey, I know like right now my job responsibilities are X, but I want to be able to grow more into this. So mm -hmm. any, any tips and ideas of how to, how to talk to supervisors and managers about how to advance yourself and develop more skills. This is really hard. And it's hard because managers seem to have all the power here. Mm -hmm. And so I always advise managers, you need to create an environment where you're truly coaching people and you're giving people opportunities to do the thing. You need to identify those. But I think it's a good point. Some managers don't do that. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for each of us as employees to take a step back and say, okay, I'm doing all of my work but I'm interested in pursuing these other areas. I would first present it as a conversational piece, a, a bit of advice that you can get by framing it as, I wanna get your advice manager on the opportunity for growth that will usually put them into a more pedagogical perspective and they're going to want to be more likely to help you. Second, I wouldn't bring up a ton of these if you're currently having performance problems. Mm -hmm. You just want to clean up that house first. You want to make sure that you're, you're on. You don't want to leave any doubt that you're able to manage additional work. Third, I would, I would suggest, hey, just starting with a less aggressive, I want to do this and say, is it possible for me to talk to this person and see if there's anything that they can do? Or is it possible for me to just do it once? Let's see if it, is, it really is a burden or not. 
frame things as low impact, frame things as let's see, and people are much more likely to say, sure, let's try that out, as opposed to, I would like to create a formal internship in doing this and following that person. It's like, no one's going to want to do that. <laughs> but just try and make it as, as low, as hit the low-hanging fruit as easily as possible with as little formal structure, but as much payoff as you can. Well, I think... Oh, absolutely. And I think what you're saying there is, you know, when we ask someone for advice, we are showing them we respect them, we value their opinion. Yep. And then once a person has advised us, it's it's an incredible manipulation tactic. And people use the term manipulation as if it's always bad. But manipulation just means taking from someone from where they are to where we want them to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when we say to our boss, you know, like, hey, can I give can you give me some advice? Now, instead of just thinking of you as a about your performance, they're taking some ownership of you. Mm -hmm. And once they're taking that ownership, they're more invested in your future success. 100%. Are there, are there any other tips that you can give for, to like, let's say your relationship with your supervisor isn't as good as you would like it to be. There is a little bit of tension there. Is there any ways to help develop that without being a brown noser? <laughs> you know, I don't ask us there, just, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, when, when I think it's important that we identify what are the reasons that the relationship isn't strong with that supervisor. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, it's just perhaps there's been a performance issue. Perhaps that person is just gruff and we have yet to understand how they communicate. And it's not really about you. It's just more about that's, they kind of have an RBF, right? You know, those sorts of things. In other instances, it might actually be a problem. It might actually be a personality conflict. There's any number of different reasons for it. In some cases, it may be important to see if there are other advocates for you, other mentors that you can pursue in the organization that can give you advice. Perhaps they're they're close with that person. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they can give you some air cover. At the end of the day, you're not beholden and trapped with your manager. Your manager hopefully is able to be reasonable and you're able to navigate that. But in the events that it's not, sometimes you're going to want to go to a, another manager not to tattle on them or not to make it seem like you're doing something and, and cutting them out of the equation, but just maybe they can drop a hint. Maybe they can say, hey, listen, I saw this person in this meeting and I actually think they'd be really good for this, right? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, there are always going to be others in the organization, if it's not your manager, who may be able to have a stronger relationship with you and who may be able to better communicate needs, your needs, to that person who, for whatever reason, you're not really able to make that um, connection. How can a person tell when it's just a personality mismatch or a person, you know, maybe a supervisor who has just kind of a, a harsh or personality and when it is getting into a space of bordering on a, like a person creating a toxic work environment mm -hmm. and maybe a more abuse, like how does a person, again, we've talked about talking to other people, things like that, but any tips, you know, for yourself where you say like, this is where it seems like it's crossing a boundary and this is where it's, it's moving into a space where you need to get away from this manager, you, it, whether it's moving on to another organization or shifting within it, any, any ideas and thoughts on that? I would say that um, you'll know when it has crossed a line because that typically then starts ushering into extreme discomfort. It, it seems rude. It seems frightening. Like for instance, it could have ramifications on your employment or on your performance uh, evaluations, et cetera. You'll know because it's, it's just gotten to that point, but there's a lot of preamble to that, mm -hmm. right? So to your point, one, 
I wouldn't just rely on your own emotions. You are constructing your own reality. You may not be seeing things the right way. Mm -hmm. You may have done something, you got negative feedback and you got very insulted by it and you couldn't see the, the, the correct nature of the feedback that you received, right? Or what have you. So what I would say is ask others, mm -hmm. ask others, run it by others, run it by your colleagues, run it by potentially other relationships you have, potentially other managers, uh, perhaps run it by past managers, people who are in a similar position, you know, because they're likely to also empathize with the manager, at least on some level and say, okay, well, I've been in that situation before too, so I can see why they would be there. Um, if it is to a point where you're really, really, really uncertain, I would probably talk to HR. Okay. I would probably bring it up to HR and I would say, hey, listen, I don't want to make a big thing at this stage yet, but I'm a little uncomfortable and I don't know how to do it. And can you coach me? Can you help me navigate this? Because you're doing two things. One, you're allowing the, the, the talent professionals to really flex their muscle in terms of their coaching. But then two, you're also putting it in their mind for them to be a little bit more vigilant as to the relationship you have. And you could potentially be diffusing some major problems in the future. Yeah. Now, how about if you are, let's say you are loving your work, you love your boss, you're being well compensated. Should people still be on the lookout for better opportunities? Because I feel like sometimes we're at our most marketable even when things are going really well. So to make sure that, you know, you are being, or is that kind of disloyal? Any thoughts that you have about like checking in with, you know, what are my other opportunities, even though I'm happy and I'm doing well, should do you feel like how often, like every couple of years, should people just be testing the market with their resume and talking to headhunters, things like that? Yearly. You should okay. always, rewriting your resume is a, first of all, a good practice because it allows you to really get a good sense of all the skills that you're employing and all the deliverables that you've actually accomplished and all the accomplishments that you've made. So mm -hmm. it's really important to keep that track. So you should always have that fresh anyway. Mm -hmm. However, one, you should always be looking and trying to create a coaching uh, uh, journey, right? So even if you're not talking with your manager about this, you should have a sense by talking to others, by getting a good lay of the land, where do you see yourself in five years? I would always ask yourself that. And perhaps you're not the only one who will answer that. Perhaps other people can give you inputs into that. But you should always be at least answering that question for yourself. Then that ushers in what I think is just the most toxic thing that happens in companies. You need to be super loyal to a company. I think it is extremely irresponsible. And I think it's silly that we can't find other employment, that we can't have a better opportunity, particularly with how often people are underpaid these days or are put in an environment where they're completely stressed out or burned out. You should always be looking for better opportunities, not because you disrespect the environment you're in, but because you respect yourself enough that you are always going to have the right connections. You're always going to have exit strategies and you're always going to be going to new places so that you can get new kinds of validation. It's very important to mental health. Very, very important for you to be able to take a step back and say, I need sometimes to just have a conversation with somebody where they say, wow, you're great. I wish you could work here. That goes a long way to the confidence that we were discussing all along in all the different other areas that you brought up earlier, Dan.
Well, and, and when you know what your worth is, let's say you get an offer from another organization, you can go back to your organization and say, hey, listen, if you want to keep me here, I, I'd love to stay. But this is what this is what I'm worth. And you're not only when you do that, you're not only helping yourself, but you're helping all those other people that you work with because you're helping set the new bar of what your position is worth. And sometimes when we when we fail to do that, when we feel like, oh, well, I'm being disloyal then or I'm not. And this is why, again, we see you know, in the education industry, you know, elementary school teachers are paid less than high school teachers. Do they do less work? No. It's because very frequently elementary school teachers are willing. They don't want to be seen as disloyal. They're not willing to, to fight, push harder for this. And unfortunately, we see this as a gender uh, disparity in income quite a bit because yeah. young women in our society are taught, well, then you're being greedy or you're not being appreciative. And this is how you know salaries get depressed year after year if you're not fighting hard and pushing for that. And any other tips you would give to people? So let's say you're going into your performance evaluation and your, your manager could give you between a one and a 4% raise. And they say, you know, you've done an excellent job this year. We're really happy with you. Um, and we'd like to give you a 2% increase this year. And, you know, so one person could stop and say, great, I got my 2%. Another person could say, well, why not four? Um, any thoughts you have or feedback on how to handle situations like that is? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, the worst thing that that happens in our workplaces is that people are taught not to discuss money, that it is rude. It is a faux pas. That is so toxic. You should be able to discuss your compensation. It is what you deserve and what you earn. It's literally your livelihood. Um, number two, um, and so first, I think people just need to get that, get the, wrap their arms around that, wrap their heads around that, because that's reality. But number two, to your point, like what are the things that you can do to get ready for those conversations? Data. Number one, you should have data. Don't just think that you are underpaid. Go find benchmarks. Go find others who you know are either overpaid. Sometimes you'll find that in the very organization that you're in, mm -hmm. right? That there are vast chasms of difference. And a lot of that has to do with when companies don't even have salary bands. Mm -hmm. And people just, you know, I made, I was always making, you know, $180,000 for this role. And another company was only paying people $100,000. Well, if you just pay people what their past salary was, that's a huge differential when they joined your company. Mm -hmm. How do you ever create parity? How do you ever work through merits to get to the right place? So you absolutely need to have data to back it up. You need to have all of those benchmarks to support what it is you're saying. And you need to get very, very clear that this is a conversation that is required for you to get what you deserve. This is equity. And when you don't speak about it, there are great opportunities for you to be taken advantage of. There are opportunities for you for you to create even more disparity. Um, honestly, and, and it sends signals to people behind you, more junior than you, that that's okay, that that's just the way it is. Unfortunately, a lot of us need to have the confidence to go in not just for ourselves, but for those who are coming after us. And I think that, you know, those are some of the key things that I would say just off the top of my head that could be useful for people to just think about when they go in to have those conversations. Yeah. And for anyone who's listening to this, if you are finding that you're dreading any aspect of your work, you have to ask yourself, what would it take to change that? What would it take for, for you to feel different and better about going into work and not be afraid to ask for that? And sometimes Financially, you know, if you work for a nonprofit or something, they may not have the money to give you, but they might be able to negotiate. Okay, but you can work from home three days a week, or we can make sure that you're not having to deal with 
emails and phone calls over the weekend. How about that work-life balance piece? Any tips and advice about setting boundaries in the work-life balance area? Absolutely. Actually, I just to, just to make a note, I think that's an excellent practice just in general for you to look at your total compensation, not just your monetary compensation. So people, some companies are never going to pay you more. Like it's unfortunately, they just don't have the budget, whatever. But if you're not going to be paid what you are worth, then perhaps you can say, okay, well then why don't I just do four days a week working? Mm -hmm. Or why don't I have more uh, PTO days that are accrued, um, which can which then become financial benefits as well in, in the future, whatever it is, although I would never actually advocate for that. But at the end of the day, there are many different ways to look at your overall salary and compensation and benefits and say, what else can I get if I'm not getting the money? Um, but to your point, um, actually, I think I may have lost your point. <laughs> Can you, you can remind we're, talking, we're talking about work-life balance and, and, and setting boundaries on the, on the idea of like, you know, doing emails over the weekends, things like that and whatnot. As Toxic. I, I usually work with, with groups and, and I just have them saying, I mean, it's, it sounds simple, but pick your battles. First of all, you need to be the type of person who says, I'm not going to do emails all weekend long. You can start receding. Right. So let's say, for instance, for the last year, you've been doing emails all weekend, seven days a week. You're constantly responding to things. That's not a sustainable practice. It's going to drive you nuts anyway, and you're going to get burnout and then you're going to leave. So there are many good reasons for you to pause and say, OK, actually, I'm not going to do it on Sunday. And then after maybe a month, I'm not going to do it on Saturday for half day. I'm only going to spend two hours on Saturday doing it. And eventually people became less dependent on you responding and don't expect you to be so responsive. You don't instruct them that you're going to be doing that. And as a result, you're able to free up that expectation completely. So I would, I would wind it down when possible. Second of all, take your PTO. You absolutely need it. From a PTO perspective, it usually takes about seven days for the average human being to actually begin unwinding. In a, in a vacation. And sometimes we only take like four day vacations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you should have long vacations, at least seven days. I would say seven to 10 days. Um, I would definitely make sure that you are doing something that is useful for you personally, not work related. Uh, they've actually found that individuals who, you know, maybe create checklists for themselves and they get accomplishment, personal accomplishments done, actually tend to feel a lot more relaxed after the vacation is over. Not because they just, you know, they shouldn't also spend a little bit of time just lounging in the sun, but because that accomplishment helps to remove some of the stress that is in their mind around these particular items. And so bottom line, I would say you should take all of your days. You should negotiate to make sure that you are taking longer PTO holidays. I would make sure that if you find yourself working late nights or you find yourself working later in the morning uh, over the weekends, start pulling that back until it's gone because you, you, you know, people are addicted <laughs> to your responsiveness. You need to make sure that you don't just make them go cold Turkey because that's going to be a big problem for you. Instead, do it slowly so that they don't know it. And I think those are two big things to, to do around um, the work-life balance piece. Yeah, I mean, just setting expectations. We train all people on how to treat us. And so if you respond to a person 
uh, you know, within 15 minutes on a Saturday that you're setting that expectation that that's what they're going to keep doing. Mm-hmm. I think for, for a lot of people who are working part-time or on con- that are contract workers, they feel this pressure to get, you know, and, and very often corporations and organizations are giving them a full-time amount of work, you know, in only, but they're only compensating them for project-based work or for part-time work. And it can be hard to push back and say, oh, okay, well, again, I think I'm doing almost, you know, like I'm only supposed to be working three days a week, but mm-hmm. I feel like I'm working as much as Susie, who's in the office five days a week and getting full benefits. Mm-hmm. So it can be a, it, it can be a challenging conversation for people to have. So do you recommend for those people just tracking their time and the amount of work that they're working so that they can have these or saying to someone, hey, if they're saying, well, you need to respond to these emails over the weekend, then saying, well, what can you take off my plate then? Because this is, you know, Absolutely. so is any other tips on that? I would definitely suggest having that kind of conversation, just going at it and just saying, okay, well, then what else moves away? It's like the priority conversation. Mm-hmm. When when people say, give you 20 priorities, you just say, that's not how priorities work, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, if this is now prioritized, then what is deprioritized? What am I going to give less time to? So have, being able to use that type of vocabulary, super important. Um, second of all, absolutely track your time. First of all, there's some illegalities there. If you are if you are specifically working a certain allotted time, and as a result, you have less benefits or less eligible for different kinds of pieces, that is an eligibility requirement, and that is a government-based thing. And so you want to make sure that you are tracking that correctly and that there are no um, smudges in your workplace so that you actually... Um, you actually lose or or they actually take advantage of you and you don't have the benefits and it's illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you just want to make sure that all those things are in there, but definitely make sure that if you are working less and if you are supposed to be working less, that you actually work less. And I think the most important thing here is that we tend to think we have less self-worth when we work less. Like, a lot of women, as you were mentioning, who come, um, you know, from maternity leave, men who come in from paternity leave and they're catching up, they feel like they just need to close the gap much more quickly instead of saying, okay, I will catch up in a reasonable amount of time. And if you actually say that to people, I believe this is a reasonable amount of time to do this. I believe I need this to get started. I need to ramp up slowly. I still... I still need to be thinking partially about my child that's at home, whatever it is, setting those expectations and being confident about them. You need to articulate them. You need to say them. So take a moment, write them down and be confident to bring those up. Because I'll tell you, I have met many women and men who come back from a very limited maternity or paternity leave, and they have almost a complete breakdown in the first week or two of being back in the office because it was too soon and they jumped in completely like head first and they should have gone in slowly and they should have gone into where they could be potentially. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think people feel this pressure to be a good team player or to take one for, you know, to do these things. But when we do that, it's kind of like when a person is in a relationship with an addict and they're enabling a behavior. And what we're doing when we are taking on more hours and more work than we really should be doing is we're helping to create an unsustainable environment and an unsustainable culture in our workplace. And so if you're creating, if you are taking on more than your job role, there probably, maybe there should be another person hired. Maybe there should be another headcount person there, but, but the organization doesn't know 
because you've been operating at the level of three people. You know, mm -hmm. I have one, I have one colleague and I keep telling him, you know, I love him. He's great. We all love him, but he's doing the work of three people. And I, I say to him all the time, like, if, if, if you know that it would take three different people to replace you, you're not actually helping our organization because what if you get sick? What if something else happens? Then all that work that you're doing right now is going to fall on lots of other people. So you need to think about it in those terms, that you're, you're actually making the culture less healthy and less sustainable. And that everyone who's listening to this, you are an incredible value. I mean, you know, so for me, Maurice, this idea of like human, re, you are a resource and that replacing people and training new people is very expensive and inefficient for corporations, for schools, for anyone. So believe in your value. And if you are one of the people listening to this who's making minimum wage right now, realize that you have like the reason that you are not making $180,000 a year is not because you're not a hard worker or a valuable person. It's because you have to learn the skills that are leveraged and valued by our society. Yes. But you know that you are an absolutely valuable person. Any other, I'm kind of ranting there, but any other thoughts as I'm uh, saying, man? Well, let, let me, let me shout it from the rooftop there, Daniel, you are a valuable person. We need to get past this toxicity where people are just a means to the ends of doing work. Mm -hmm. Human beings are an ends unto themselves. We don't exploit people. We don't just take and extract as much as humanly possible from them in the workplace. Another example that you had just mentioned about, you know, what you're contributing to a bad culture when you're allowing for these behaviors. Think about PTO, for example. If people cannot run a company because you're not there answering questions every single moment of the day. What happens when you leave? Mm -hmm. What happens when you're sick? What happens if you were in a car accident? Does the company cease to exist? At the end of the day, you are doing them a service by forcing redundancies, by making sure that other people can step into that place and testing it. There are very good reasons to be doing that. So yes, you're getting a lot out of it because you get your vacation that you absolutely need. But if your vacation, one, allows for uh, others to actually learn the business and actually be able to step in and help, that's going to create a lot more mental space for you. And second, you're not going to engage in a burnout, which means burnout, once that happens, chances are almost 80% that you're going to leave the, that organization because it's very hard to come back from burnout because it means that you've hit an exploitative component of that relationship with the business and you don't wanna to get to that point. And so preventing that from happening is it goes directly to your point around turnover, which is a disaster for organizations, even and especially those that are more minimum wage roles or more junior roles. It's like a revolving door half the time and that's a very expensive and it takes a mental toll on all the other colleagues that stay, that see, that either have to fill in and take over when those roles are closed, or they just sit there and say, wow, is everyone leaving this organization? And so there's all these different factors in place. So by doing the right things, by engaging in the right type of culture and avoiding this, this toxicity, you are making the workplace better for you and everyone else. Well, Maurice, where can people go to learn more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, <clears throat> one, you can go to Ducoin HCM, so D-U-C-O-I-N-G-H-C-M.com. 
That's my website. It's actually relaunching in the next week or so. So you'll see it. It'll go from a grayish to a beautiful blue font. <laughs> so right. some changes there. And it'll actually have a lot of resources there that, that individuals can use. But second, LinkedIn. I am very active on LinkedIn. You can search for DuCoin Human Capital as well as just uh, connect with me, Maurice DuCoin. I would suggest both of those because I have different things in each one. And every day I'm posting new tips, new articles, new things so that people can better educate yourself on how you can create a better workplace. So definitely I would, I would, I would say those are the key areas. For everyone listening to this, you're going to spend so much of your life, your waking life, your adult life working. You deserve to be happy and fulfilled in the work that you're doing. And if you're not, seek out help, advice, and support so that you can get that. Because why not? You're going to be a better romantic partner. You're going to be a better parent. If you're feeling more fulfilled at work, you're going to come home and it's going to impact all aspects of your life and your mental health. So there's no reason why we should accept toxic relationships in the workplace. Well, Maurice, any other just general mental health thoughts that you want to share with our audience? You know, one final thought. Um, we've been talking about accomplishments. We've been talking about doing work. There's actually two kinds of thinking, two kinds of experiences we have with perception. There is what we call achieving and then awareness or uh, openness. We need to have both elements in order for us to have any kind of mental health and mental health balance. We need to have the I'm getting things done and I have meaning and purpose in the work that I do. We also need a spiritual element. And that doesn't mean you have to be a religious person. It could be a connection to nature. It could be a connection to the world around us, collectivity, whatever it is. However, we're able to find a place that is bigger than ourselves. That is an extremely important component. Lisa Miller, PhD, has been doing a ton of great work in this area. Mm -hmm. And I would really just look at that. We need to have the accomplishments, but we also need to realize that our accomplishments are largely irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. And so we need to find meaning in the connectivity around us in that sort of spirituality. And it's a major advocate, or you can't have mental health in that regard. Right. We don't, nobody wants it on their gravestone, you know, best quarterly earnings of 2037. Like that's not, that's not what it's going to be about. So having that greater meaning and purpose in your life and where are we going to derive that from? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on. For any of you who are listening, if you have questions for Mariska and for me, you can email us at dmaglerlcsw at gmail.com. Mariska wanted me to reminded me to also say that we're bringing, doing this to bring attention to pause for Patrick. So if you know a young person who could benefit from an emotional support animal, reach out to pauseforpatrick.org. If anybody who's struggling with mental health issues, let's get some animals into their lives. And until we speak again, do whatever it takes to get you through this world. And just remember, you are not allowed to die.